Today's Ulster Rugby Roundup podcast is in memory of much-loved BBC broadcaster and friend of Ulster Rugby, Stephen Clements. Stephen passed away suddenly aged 47 earlier this week. He was best known to Ulster fans for his period as announcer at Kingspan Stadium during Ulster Rugby's link with Q Radio. Jonathan Bradley, you knew Stephen from those days around the ground and like everyone else, I'm sure you uh, enjoy working with him. Yeah, absolutely. I wouldn't say that I know him well or anything, but he always came across as an absolutely lovely fella and I suppose everyone's very sad and shocked by the news today. Our thoughts and prayers, of course, um, uh, as probably all of the Ulster Rugby family are with uh, Stephen's friends and family at this most difficult time. So on the, the rugby front then, Ulster picked up a 38-17 win over Munster on Friday evening to make it two wins from three festive Interpro fixtures. We'll discuss the ins and outs of that victory on today's podcast, as well as looking ahead to this weekend's trip to Claremont and addressing some of your listener questions. So, first of all, as has been the case over recent weeks, John Cooney, Friday's game away all about that battle away it wasn't away was it home it was away. written away Friday's game was all about that battle between John and Connor Murray of course so Cooney got the upper hand and as you wrote afterwards Jonathan he should now be Ireland's number 9 for the Six Nations I think there's a very difficult balance whenever you're looking at international selection between current form and credit in the bank Naturally, no international team is picked solely on form because you would rob yourself of any continuity. But I think we've now reached a point where John Cooney has been probably in better form for a year and a half plus at this stage. So this it's not reactionary. And now we've seen mm-hmm. the two of them up close together. Now, obviously, Cooney was playing behind a pack that was much more effective and playing with people that could get across the game line in a much more effective fashion. But he was also just the better scrum half on show of the two. And at this stage, personally, I think he gives Ireland a better chance of a successful Six Nations than mm-hmm. Conor Murray, as brilliant a player as Conor Murray has been throughout his career. It seems to be a, an opinion that is being sort of spread across Ireland at this stage. Adam McHenry, is it one that, that you share? I think it's proof that he is now the former scrum half in Ireland. For so long, we've seen that Ulster may be overlooked in terms of being looked at for the for the national team but whenever you've got media from across the entire island saying that John Cooney has to start the first game against Scotland in the Six Nations I think that's a pretty conclusive proof that he is now the foreign player in Ireland and I completely agree you know you can just see that even in that game on Friday night, Cooney was playing with more confidence than Murray. Every, everything that Murray was doing, you were looking at and you were managing to find a way to scrutinise it. You know, you're looking at... I, I thought one of the things that really struck me very early on was how much of a train that Murray had to take for his box kicks. Now, that seems like something that's really insignificant, but if you're having to get, like, three guys creating a train in front of you just to get a simple box kick away, that's someone who's not very confident he's going to be able to get his kicks away without someone charging him down, whereas Cooney's very confident in that way. I just think there's such a striking difference between sort of the form of the two in terms of if you look at it as a projection, you know, Cooney's stock has only risen over the last Mm -hmm. 12 months, whereas Murray's only declined. And I think somewhere potentially three or four months ago, Cooney drew level with Murray. And I think ever since he's only gone on to surpass him. So I think at this stage, if... Andy Farrell wants to send out a message at the start of the Six Nations that this is now his team, mm-hmm. this is now his era. He's got to go with Con- or with uh, John Cooney to start that game and really send out a message that just because 
you got the you got the calls under Joe Schmidt doesn't mean you're necessarily going to get the calls mm-hmm. from me. And again, I'm, I'm going to agree with Johnny. I think Murray's decline has been over-exaggerated. I think people, some people are saying, you know, oh, he's completely off the boil. He's completely different to the player that he was. And I think that's a bit overstated. Mm-hmm. I still think he is a world-class nine. I think just right now he is not playing up to that standard. And I think he is still probably the best nine in Ireland. And the world, as we said a few weeks ago. Yeah. Eight tries he has this season. That's as many as he managed over the course of the last two seasons combined for Ulster. How is he? Why, what's changed in his game that has led him to become such a prolific try scorer? Well, we talked to him about it some stage over the festive period. It all blends into one. And it was something that he actually really targeted. It was something that uh, Dwayne Peel had challenged him almost to add to his game. And for instance, the support line that he ran for Munster. Off I always think you're just referring to Dave Shanahan. Well, see, support line. it was a very Dave Shanahan-esque try, mm-hmm. really. Um, obviously, it involved a great step, but I think Earls was coming across at that point. So from that position, I think he should have scored. He obviously did. But if you go back at some of his other scores, a lot of his other scores are just, I think, the product of confidence not that he's ever lacking in confidence but the confidence to try some of the more outlandish things that he's pulling off like mm-hmm. the the Claremont score being a prime example and his ones against Harlequins in London from talking to him about it he just feels that he's in a place now where I suppose he's got that wealth of experience and he's now playing so much more that whenever he's essentially appro- approaching the base of the rock he feels like he's seeing something that he's seen before so it's so much easier to exploit the gaps and weaknesses that he's seeing in those systems. And that, to me, is a big part of the difference at the minute between John Cooney and Conor Murray. Because it looks to me that Conor Murray is just that half-tick slower when he gets to the base of the ruck, that he's almost processing it. Not when he gets there, but it's just it's taking longer for him to make his decision about what he's going to do. And the most impressive thing about John Cooney's game this year has been that he looks like he's already decided what he's going to do by the time that he gets there, and that puts him half a step ahead. You know, some of those breaks that he makes around the rock that have led the tries are things that he's almost in the process of doing before he's picked the ball up, you know, and it's that speed of thought, I think I would put it down to, as the big difference in him exploiting those gaps this year. I think we saw that contrast on Friday night, you know, where you're looking at... Ulster's collective speed and defence was always up in the face of the Munster players and that comes from you know having a nine that's getting to the breakdown and having to wait to play to play the ball and sort of think about what they're doing whereas Ulster were able to throw those moves out the back I know Luke Marshall had a couple really good loop around passes and they're getting it to the wings at pace and there's the contrast of if you have someone who is getting to the breakdown and knows immediately what they're going to do. And I think Billy Burns has to take a lot of credit for this as well, because he's in position, he's calling the plays as soon as it happens too. But I think having Cooney there, ready to go, ready to pass the ball as soon as it comes back, compared to having to wait just that half second, it lets the defence reset, it lets them be up in your face as soon as the ball comes out the backs. And I think that's a big part of what what has Cooney ahead of Murray at the moment for but everyone. Before he scored his try, I thought it was interesting the way that Munster essentially tried to negate that by tackling him basically late enough that the pass was already away, but early enough that it didn't get called as a late tackle. <laughs> yeah. So we saw that a few times, mm-hmm. and then 
it's something that you know like South Africa for example did really well against Japan with um, their scrum half Nagari who is so um, getting from rock to rock quickly is so important to his game and we saw Munster basically just try and knock Kenny out of his rhythm sort of pin him down to the ground that extra split second so that he's a little bit later mm. getting to the ruck and it's going to be interesting I think to see if other teams try and replicate that moving forward because mm. it's a difficult enough skill as I say to That's do true. it without getting pinged for mm-hmm. it but if you can and you have that sort of nippy scrum half that's just relentlessly rock to rock, mm-hmm. um, it can make it quite difficult. Mm-hmm. Donal asks, uh, the weekly Donal, of course, you returned uh, on last week's podcast after a spell away. He said back again this week, he asks, are we too dependent on John Cooney? Because he says if you take him out of the squad, well, who is there, there to, that organises the back line in, in his absence? I mean, yes. They, I wouldn't say they're too reliant on him, but yeah, they're pretty reliant on him because, I mean, you look at the fact that he has started every European game. I think he's played every minute of every European game. If you go through most of the big games this season, he's played the majority of those games as well. But that that's what happens though. Your big yeah. players will play the majority of your games. The big players will generally play 80 minutes in your big games. It's the same with Ian Henderson. It's the same with Marcel Kutsia. You know, these guys are linchpins in the Ulster team and it's okay to be reliant on them. Mm-hmm. You're going to be weakened when you don't have them, but that's the same for every team. You know, every team has these players that you'll want to be on the pitch for 80 minutes that you try and put your game through it's more about the depth underneath so I think Ulster do need to develop a bit more depth underneath Cooney so they're not quite so exposed when he's not there but I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing that they're reliant on him because whenever you've got a guy in that form and whenever he's so good why would you not be reliant mm. on it? Why, why would you not mm. try and build your game around him? Is Do they need another organiser though? John's not there. I don't know if that's strictly speaking the case because there's been a lot said about, I suppose, how John Kinney plays in this French style nine of the nine dictating, but in the sense that I suppose too many cooks spoil the broth. You don't want two players dictating at the same time. So there's nothing to say that Billy Burns can't shoulder more of the load yeah. playing with a different nine. We haven't seen it an awful lot, as Adam says, because Kenny's played so much. But, like, you know, they did beat Rassing last year with Dave Shanahan starting. So he, he has got that little bit more, I suppose, big game experience and also have the experience of winning without Cooney. But I think you are in a position where you want to see a greater split between the minutes, but like Ulster and few teams in the world really are in a position, say like Leinster, and where you can almost hold Sexton back from a European quarterfinal and play Ross Byrne and still be confident that you're going to win. Mm. You know, But I thought it was Ryan Pino was holding back all these Ulster-born scrum halves. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a weird word. <laughs> just, just, just on the Billy Burns note, we've heard how he's been almost promoted to the senior leadership team this year. That signifies that he's got good standing within the team, that he's able to control a group and control almost a game within a group. So um, I would say that's a pretty good indicator Mm -hmm. that he could step into that absence if Cooney isn't there. On the subject of uh, Billy Burns, Derry Gassman asks, with the rumours of a Cooney-Burns start in the Six Nations... Do you think Joey Garbery regrets not coming to Ulster? Obviously, there's a couple of points of this question we want to address. Uh, first of all, 
think Joey Carver regrets not uh, not moving north? No, I just think he really didn't want to. <laughs> I don't think anything is going to change that. Um, I can see the point that the idea that it's beneficial to be playing with the Ireland scrum half and therefore it would have been beneficial to get reps with John Cooney. Obviously, when he moved to Munster, the idea was that it would be very beneficial for him to be playing with Conor Murray. And really, if you want to delve deeper into it, it would have been beneficial for him to play fullback at Leinster and dovetail with Johnny Saxon for the World Cup. None of that happened, but Mm. in a much wider sense, it's all moot because he's always been injured (laughs) and he's injured again. So it's not that uh, he's not getting chances because he's things have gone wrong at Munster he's not getting chances because he's just been continually injured the man has no luck no absolutely none so, yeah, we wish him a speedy recovery um, any chance Billy Burns getting a start at Six Nations I wouldn't say in the first game unless there's an injury to Ross Byrne um, and I think Sexton's projected to be back for the first game of the Six Nations mm. anyway I was going to say and I think his first game, the first yeah. game is probably his best chance because Sexton will be back after that mm. yeah um, and Sexton is hotly tipped to be captain for the world or for, sorry for the Six Nations as well so mm. even less of a chance of yeah. Burns getting in ahead of him so yeah I'd say it's unlikely but like you, you don't know what could happen over, over the next couple of weeks. Ross Byrne could get an injury. Johnny Sexton might have a setback in his comeback, so, as Johnny touches wood. Um, so you, you don't know, but I mean, is, he's at least given them an option. You know, Whenever you look at how Cooney and Burns have played together this year, it at least puts that option into the back of Andy Farrell's mind. It's mm-hmm. I don't think it'll be his first option, but it's at least there, and he yeah. knows that it is something that he can fall back on. Just before we leave the, the subject of John Cooney, Martin McGowan asks if he does indeed leapfrog Murray in the Ireland standings, should Ulster be targeting another number nine as a step up from Dave Sportland Shannon? So if you look at really what Munster were doing, I suppose last year and for a bit of this year with Albie Matthews and somebody with that level of experience and that level of big game experience, that covers you then when you're in a position of having the number one scrum half because the minutes are so much more for those sort of specialised positions, if you like. So let's say, for the sake of argument, that John Cooney becomes Ireland's new number nine, right? So he would miss February and March for Ulster. He would be playing in a summer tour in July, so he would miss October, and he'd then be away again for Ireland in November to return only to come back in February and March. So mm-hmm. he's your player, but he's really only your player for three months. Yeah of a nine-month season at that stage, a 10-month season. Yes, it would certainly be something that I think Ulster would have to look at if they were to start losing him for such prolonged Mm -hmm. chunks in the same way that Conor Murray probably plays 10 games for Munster a year, whereas at the minute, John Cooney plays 25 games for Ulster. Whenever you look at Ulster's scrum half-stocks below John Cooney, with the best will in the world, I don't think Dave Shannon is a long-term sort of stand in for John Cooney while he's away on international duty so you're looking below that at Johnny Stewart and potentially even Nathan Doak now we're really go- dropping down very deep and you've got Lewis Finley coming through as well I think they'll let him out of school for training during the Six Nations <laughs> but if you're looking for someone sort of an experienced head to come in and help those guys yeah you are looking at bringing in someone like Albie Mathewson maybe you do look at Albie Mathewson I don't think he I don't think he's been picked up by a team since he left Munster so the whole John Dazel thing didn't work out too well maybe when it comes to <laughs> yeah 
allowing people to come up here so they can stay in Ireland when they're forced out of Munster is not the, not the future. But I think you do want someone experienced to come in. Are there any obvious names? Albie Matthewson. <laughs> I think it's actually, it's a really interesting discussion because what you're looking at is traditionally not so much over the last few years, but really from Johan Miller and that sort of David Humphreys era of recruitment, you've always looked at your NIQ as somebody that should be a star and should be starting in the team every week in the Heineken Cup. But there is probably an argument, I guess, if you're not going to be able to sign that top tier, those World Cup winners, Miller, Miller, Pina, or Fulla, whoever, that you'd be better served signing players to cover spots where you already have Irish internationals because then you have not so much a drop-off during what is now... You know, obviously everything's exacerbated by the World Cup, but what is such a long period without your international players? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It'll be an interesting one to, to watch over the coming weeks and months. So, Stuart McCluskey, second trial of the season, man of the match on uh, Friday night. I thought he was exceptional. I thought he had one of his best games he's ever had in an Ulster jersey because whenever you consider that it was probably his defensive read that, cost Ulster their first or that let Munster score their first try yeah. he bounced back superbly in attack and one of the things that I think a lot of people will look at are you know the fact that he only makes on average I think it's just over two meters a carry but it's the fact that you know you look at for Matty Ray's try he sucks in two defenders and that allows him to put the pot pass out for Ray to go through the gap and over for the try he creates that. For his own try, he has that brilliant carry where he's got three guys hanging off him and he takes it up to the five metre line. There's another carry after that and he's straight in again with the next carry to go over with another two guys hanging off him. You know, mm-hmm. It's just that ability to have constant attention on him because he's such a physical ball carrier that it creates the space elsewhere. You just notice that every time he makes a carry, there's space out wide for somebody else. And even whenever he does make a carry, he's throwing bizarre offloads or faking offloads to... Uh, who was he fake the offload to? Was it Luke Marshall and then out to Billy Burns? I thought that was insane. I saw someone put on Twitter, you know, if Sonny Bill Williams had done that, the collective internet would have lost their minds. I was going to say it was another Williams. Uh, it was Nick Williams that reminded me. I always remember he used to sort of double pump the, the fake offload yeah. and then pull the ball back in. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I thought he was brilliant. It's, it's a really tough one because you look at Ireland's centres and you look at Robbie Henshaw, Bundyaki, guys who have been in the squad for a long time and are very well established, very good players. You're really fighting an uphill battle to break into that squad and get a start potentially in the Six Nations because those guys are tried and trusted. They've done it at international level and unlike the Murray Cooney situation, those two have kept up a fairly high standard of performance. Mm-hmm. But certainly I think Stuart McCluskey's doing everything he can to break into that uh, into that equation. And so I, I think he is part of the equation. Like I'm mm-hmm. I'm not saying he's on the outside looking in. I think he very much is part of the equation. But as Johnny said earlier, if you picked everyone on form, you would have no yeah. consistency within your mm-hmm. team selection. So this is one of those ones where he's perhaps gonna miss out because the mm-hmm. other two haven't had that drop off that Marius had but like if he keeps this up he'll eventually work his way into sort of like Cooney levels mm-hmm. of you can't ignore that form I don't know whether he's a better player this year or whether he's just got more freedom 
to show it. Mm. But the one thing that I would say to counter against the fact that, you know, he's been playing well for a while and not broken through is the fact that we're seeing so much more facets to his game. The most important stuff that he does is what Adam talked about. The fact that he commands attention, the fact that he gives you gain line consistently um, from the back of a scrum, from the back of the lineout. But the other thing that he does now is, you know, you saw his pass for... Balakin, Balakin's try. So his wide pass out to Luke Marshall opened that up after however many phases it was of banging in narrow and not being able to get across the whitewash. And then, you know, people joked about his kick or some of it. People have joked about some of his kicks. But <coughs> Shin. Um, the one against Harlequins, for example, in um, Twickenham was beautifully measured. And that's something that I don't think we would have seen him try. Now, he, mm-hmm. he's always spoken about how he essentially does what he's told to in the game plan if he's told to truck it up 15 times then he will if he's told to pass the ball then he will but I think we're seeing so much more variety to his game on top of things that he does that no other Irish player does which is just run straight through the opposition and guarantee you that even even if as Adam says it's only two meters if the gain line's in the middle of those two meters then as we saw on Friday it can be the difference between an attack looking dangerous and an attack as yeah. Monster did, looking very flat. Yeah. I mean, it's very notable against Monster that he made 14 carries, but he also made 10 passes. You know, if it, mm-hmm. if you're an inside centre defending against Stuart McCloskey and you've got him running at you, and all of a sudden the pass is gone, yeah. there's a very good chance you're not ready for that because you're fully focused on trying to stop mm-hmm. him because he's such a powerful runner. That's such a good attribute to have mm-hmm. whenever you're in the centre. Yeah. As you mentioned... I think it was Darren Cave was talking on second captains a week ago, a couple of weeks ago, um, and they were just talking about how he never saw McCluskey having that kicking ability uh, whenever he was part of the squad, but that's something he's added. You know, mm. Just having those extra strings to his bow is essential. Yeah. He's also playing alongside Luke Marshall this season, who you wrote a little bit uh, after the game. Yeah, I think Luke Marshall has been playing really, really well this year. Stuart McCluskey getting so much attention and Stuart McCluskey is in amongst those players. Really, I would say six or seven people among Ulster that they're talking about having a heavy role during the Six Nations. Luke Marshall didn't get in even to that wider stock take and hasn't been involved with Ireland for a few years now. But I think he's playing his best rugby. Like I think he's now playing better than you know when we saw him emerge under the scene as a 22 year old and he's been so important because not to keep going back to the monster game and we'll talk about the claremont game soon but johan van graan afterwards in his long list of <laughs> why he didn't think things were going particularly well over the last month for monster talked about continuity whereas dan mcfarland has somebody like luke marshall that he can go to and be like do you want to sit out this week and because he's had that experience of um, the bad injury and coming back he's like no I want to play I want to play as much as I can and like nobody's played more so he's able to just essentially ink him into that 13 jersey and you saw at the start whenever everybody was filtering back in the one thing that we said Ulster were lacking was cohesion and continuity now it seems a long time ago now with bonus points in five of their last six mm-hmm. but you look at that relationship between Cooney, Burns McCluskey and Marshall and it's because they're all playing yeah. <laughs> just continually whereas the rest of the provinces haven't had that benefit because they've been so, I suppose, disrupted by this mm-hmm. World Cup year. So to have that and to have all the, those four players playing the way they're playing is a huge part of what are doing as well as they are. Mm-hmm. Just uh, finally on that game then, before we move on, Jacob Stockdale ends his uh, almost year-long try drought for Ulster, which was just 
great for everybody to see. How many games was it he actually only went without scoring? Yeah, so it was only actually a 10 game run. It was yeah, just, that doesn't sound as good. Yeah, as it was yeah. just spread out over whatever it was, 49 weeks or something. Yeah, but that's, I, probably, that, well, that's definitely the first time he'd ever gone 10 games without scoring. Well, see, he didn't score. It took him ages not to score his first games, try. But his no. first try, because he didn't score in that first half season, if you mm-hmm. like, after he made his debut against Teresa, as they were then. It was after that that he just mm-hmm. scored every game or every yeah. other game. Uh, but, and obviously he did score four tries during that year as well with yeah, Ireland. But um, yeah, I think you could see just by the size of the smile on his face mm. when he was going over that he was pretty happy with it anyway I think it was notable John Cooney's reaction as well chasing him the whole way up the pitch just to celebrate <laughs> with him Like he's, he's talked in previous weeks Stockdale's talked in previous weeks about having to find other ways to have an impact on the yeah. game and it was a very important part of his career you know where he went through that tried having to find other ways to contribute because as a winger obviously your ultimate aim is to be scoring tries and if you're not doing that then obviously scrutiny comes on you because you're not doing effectively what you're on the pitch to do but I think whenever he got that shift to fullback that really helped him because he was getting his hands on the ball a bit more in more central areas rather than just having to wait for the ball to come to him on the wing. He was able to make a few more explosive carries from deep kicks. He was able to simply get his hands on the ball a bit more and I think that's probably really helped with his confidence coming back into Ulster and coming back into Mm -hmm. a winning team. But just to get the try and just have that off his back is it must be a huge weight off his shoulders. And of course we all expect him now to go on a Phenomenal try scoring run again now that he's got that one on the board. European rugby is back this weekend with the final uh, pool stage doubleheader. Ulster, of course, go to Clermont this weekend. Um, it's going to take something pretty unthinkable to deny Ulster a quarter final place at this stage. Really, they're playing for a home quarter final and topping the pool. This game is a, basically a playoff, isn't it? Yeah, well, look, if they win this, then they're in the quarterfinals. Mm-hmm. No mess about it. But this is a playoff for a home quarterfinal. Well, you still, you still have to turn up and beat Bath. Stranger things have happened. Not many. <laughs> stranger things have happened <laughs> than um, Ulster losing the Bath at home, regardless of whether Bath have anything to play for. Not this Ulster, though. <laughs> I'll just remind you of that Ulster team that went down to Toman Park the last day of what the 2014-15 season. Yeah, Beat. but that's not this Ulster. I didn't have Robert Ballacreen on it, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so, Kenny Gad asks, when a fully fit squad to pick from, who would you play in France with an eye on the bath game next week, which will still need one regardless of the result this week? And it is interesting. The It's going to play out interestingly. Ulster, knowing that they... Well, Ulster wanting to win both these games. How does Dan McFarland approach that? I think... Personally, that he'll go full strength completely and full strength next week. Bear in mind mm-hmm. that they don't have another game until the fifteenth of February. After that, yeah, um, I do take the point, and the reason that I'll say this is because if you go back to that Scarlets game, Pro Fourteen, when we were talking about, you know, would they maybe rest players for that to be fresh for Europe, and they didn't, and they still won the game against Harlequins, but it was a very tight run thing that required a John Cooney penalty at the at the very death. Basically, if Adam McBurney doesn't get tackled off the ball and also lose that game, then part of the post-match narrative is should they have had players fresh for the game that really mattered. But I also think that the carrot of the home quarterfinal is far too much to 
ignore really yeah, that's that's going to be their aim now like if you're in the Ulster team this week that's what they're talking about is it not absolutely like if you look at something this has only happened twice before where Ulster have had a home quarter final and you also have to take into consideration the fact that and I know Dan McFarland wouldn't appreciate this but they don't lose at home at the moment <laughs> so many games is it now it's 19, 19. their all time professional era record is 21 so they're honing in on that mm-hmm. You know, Friday night was a game where I thought possibly they could have slipped up, which is with Munster sending a good team, and they blitzed them early. Um, So they're building something at Ravenhill. You know, that word fortress has been bandied about again in uh, pre-match build-up and stuff. So the card of having a a quarter-final at home would be huge, as long as you don't end up with Saracens, which could happen. (laughs) But yeah. I also think if you pose this question about any other team, like say say Munster were in exactly the same position as Ulster, and you said to an Ulster fan, Munster are going to send a weak team to Claremont, or a weakened team to Claremont to focus on Bath next week, you'd say they were crazy. It's an interesting yeah. point of whether it's different mentalities and whether not so much the players. And it was something that like Dan Soper said the other day about confidence, like you know maybe your confidence is different from our confidence when he's talking about mm-hmm. going to these places and trying to win. That maybe there is that idea of Ulster still a work in progress, so they're not wholly trusted, whereas the big team mentality, the team with designs on winning this competition, would always be like, we're going to go out and try and win every game because we want to win all the games because we want to play mm-hmm. at home. I'm not saying the players, probably mm-hmm. more among the fan base yeah. and people observing the team. But yeah, Adam's 100% right. Like, I, you know... Leinster, for example, would not be like, no. we're going to target the game that makes sure we get into the quarterfinals <laughs> yeah. and pump away the game that we think <laughs> yeah. we're not going to win yeah. anyway. Yeah. Ulster talk about being on a journey, but here's a chance to put down a very strong marker of literal progression. You know, mm-hmm. They've gone from not being in the quarterfinals to being in the quarterfinals, and a year on from that, they could have a home quarterfinal. And I think that's so- important as well, because like whenever we talked in the summer, we were almost like, you know, did Dan McFarland do too well in his first season because what's the <laughs> yeah. follow-up to show that you're progressing? And a home quarter-final certainly would be it because if they were to lose to Claremont and beat Bath, you can make the argument that while a home quarter-final was in their grasp this time when it wasn't the last time, that's only really because of where the like where the trip to France mm-hmm. featured oh, in the fixture yeah. list. Yeah, but if you want my... Now, this is my favourite start of the week. Here we go. So, Claremont, one of the toughest places in Europe to go. Absolute fortress. Nobody wins there. Claremont have, since their 77-game unbeaten streak came to an end, won 84 times at home, lost 15, and drew three. So essentially, Mm. they don't win one out of every five games at home now, which Mm. is considerably worse than, say, Ulster. (laughs) (laughs) Now, obviously... The top 14 fixture list is not made up by teams like Ospreys and Zebra and the Kings <laughs> visiting. Nice. But the fact but the, French, the French teams do have that mentality of going away from home where no, that's true, yeah. they mm-hmm. just try and sneak whatever they can. They don't really yeah. worry about getting the win. So. so the fact of the matter is we're going to hear an awful lot about how tough a place this is to go. And don't get me wrong, it's a difficult place to go. But it's but not impregnable. It would probably be, I would say, the third most difficult away trip that Ulster will make this season. Mm-hmm. Like, Claremont lose at home far more than Leinster lose and far more than Munster lose. Mm-hmm. Probably if you were to go into it, maybe even more than Glasgow lose. Maybe. 
So, look, there's no chance, really, that the Ulster team are not going to go full strength. I think we can probably agree on that. I think it would be amazing if they went anything less yeah, than full strength. It's not going to happen. Like, for, for all the talk that they've done and for all the superlatives that they've put out about wanting to be taken seriously as, as a European team, well, while they're still on this journey, they want to be taken seriously mm-hmm. as a potential threat. So why do anything to jeopardise that by sending over anything less than your full-strength team mm. to Claremont. Here is a chance for Ulster to really send out a statement that they yeah. are a serious threat mm. in Europe. Because up until this point, I still think a lot of people have looked at Ulster and gone, OK, you've beaten Claremont at home, which is a good result, but Claremont aren't traditionally one of mm. one of the great travelling teams in Europe. You've beaten Harlequins twice, you've beaten Bath once. Two teams who arguably don't really have a great interest in Europe. Whatever way you want to look at that. But if you win away in Claremont, no matter what the circumstances, no matter what the teams put out, that's a statement. Mm-hmm. That, well, it would be the most impressive thing they've done in Europe since beating Munster in the quarterfinal. Yeah. yeah. You become the talk of, of Europe, really, after this weekend, if you manage it. Am I sensing a cautious optimism that Ulster are actually going to do this and win it? They would game this weekend, not the European Cup. <laughs> Although you never know. Well, again, I, I think it's very notable that line that Dan Super came out with of maybe your confidence isn't great, but mm. our confidence is. Oh, I think they all 100% believe they're going to win this. But I wondered, did they always, like even when they were rubbish, yeah. you know, is it just as. No, I don't think that. Is it just I a sports I think, I think you, No, I think when you're in a team that's not that great you know you're not that great. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. But mm-hmm. I think this team, I think this team maybe have a greater sort of understanding of what they're capable of than anybody else does right now. Because even just winning in France, you know, winning in France is something that they haven't done under a time before. And fair enough, they've only had one crack at it. But they haven't won in France since that ONI game. And that ONI game should go down in the record books as a defeat, really because it cost them their place mm-hmm. in the quarterfinals because they didn't get the bonus point, um, having been, whatever it was, 23-0 down at halftime or something. So it's a real rarity <laughs> to win mm-hmm. in France. But I do think that they are probably travelling with optimism to a team that, let's be honest, is eighth in the league. Like, I know. You can, look, you can go two ways about this. You can say that Claremont are one of the best teams in Europe, and you'll be right. You can say that Claremont have a galaxy of superstars and you'd be right you can say that the bottom half in the top four you can say that the Stad Marcel Michelin is a really tough place to go and you'd be right but you can also say that they lose three or four times a year there now mm-hmm. and you'd be right you could say you're playing a team that's eighth in the league and you'd be right and you could also say that you're playing a team that this season as a whole taking out games against Bath and Harlequins haven't even been that impressive against anyone like domestically they have no try bonus points no losing bonus points so when they've lost They've not. It's not been close, mm. and when they've won, they haven't been playing the sparkling rugby that we probably all associate with them. One through past years, and two because without top fourteen on UK TV, all we've seen of them this yeah, year yeah, is much. like Harlequins and Bath and them hammering them, and then a really poor performance against Ulster. Mm-hmm. All that said, I still think Claremont are going to win. <laughs> you would, you would. But if you look at their top fourteen form, they've only scored more than thirty points at home once this season, which isn't what 
we're used to from Claremont. They're usually such a free-scoring, high-octane team at home, but they just haven't quite hit the heights at the Marcel Michelin. And they're coming up against, and not to be too positive, but probably one of the best defensively organised teams that they'll have come up against all season in Ulster. Mm-hmm. Like, you go back to that first game that Ulster played against them, they just shut them down every single time. Besides that one try very late on, which came from the scrum, rather than any great attacking play that Claremont put together, Ulster shut down Claremont's offence for 80 minutes, very, very effectively. Mm-hmm. And it's a completely different question you know going over to the Stade Marcel Michelin and doing it compared to doing it in a wet and windy Kingsman stadium but at the same time Ulster have a very good benchmark from where to start from a defensive perspective and I think that's something that they will really back themselves Mm. to do we talk about having the confidence to go over there and win I think that confidence stems from that defensive mentality of we know we're good enough to stop these teams so as long as we're putting points on the board every time we go down to their end, we're going to stand a good chance here no matter who we're playing. Mm-hmm. So we, we probably uh, can agree to disagree on whether or not uh, Ulster are going to win this weekend, but we'll probably think it's going to be a close call. So just uh, besides that, then Martin McGowan also uh, points out that it's usually around this time of year that we start hearing about players coming and going. He wants to know which Ulster players are out of contract at the end of this season. I know that Jordy Murphy, Jack McGrath and Will Addison are on it without having to look it up. There's a few more. Sean Reedy is uh, another one that after the last couple of weeks, hope they got that deal done quickly because he'll, he'll need a bit yeah. more money now. Uh, <laughs> Andy Warwick, John Andrew, Jacob Stockdale, forgetting about, and Louis Ludic are all out of contract there's a couple of Kyle McCall and Clive Ross I've got down as having contracts until the end of last season but are still on the books <laughs> so they've got some kind of deal yeah, but I'm not sure how contract. long until um, so yeah the, there's a sizable list there actually there's more than I thought there was especially yeah. considering that they've already got Marty Murr and Billy Burns done yeah so many of those players do a reckon are going to still be here next season you got Stockdale we're imagining will go on to an Irish central like contract. I think so. So that's out of Ulster's I control. I'm going to be waiting for them to announce that. Is this going to become one of these Ian Henderson things where we start to get a little bit panicky? Well, see, this is the thing. It used to be that, you know, you would start to see them really in the, at the end of November you would get these central contracts coming out, but it just get, it's getting progressively later to the point where, as you say, Henderson's was late enough last year. People were sort of thinking that Rob Carney might retire. It took so long for his uh, for his contract to be confirmed. So it shouldn't be cause for undue concern that it has yet to be announced. Yeah, so just get a stock deal to Rossing type of uh, buzz going early. <laughs> be good for the hits. Um, so, yeah, look, time will tell on all those uh, uh, when we start hearing of um, the Ulster contracts and indeed any signings, number nine or otherwise, so uh, we'll keep an eye on all that. Ian Frizzell asks just finally, looking ahead to February, we have three Pro 14 games in the middle of the Six Nations, Six Nations, and we'll need to call on squad and academy players. Are Ulster's All-Ireland League clubs playing at a high enough standard to ensure adequate preparation, or do we need more A games? Well, I think 1A at the minute is a very high standard, given the strength of the... I suppose Leinster and 
uh, monster club game, I suppose. So you've got Ballon Hinch in there, and fair enough, they're not exactly going great guns, but they're playing at a high standard. Ideally, you would like another club up. Obviously, we've talked about this at length in previous podcasts. I think the thing with the A games is that I think they look to have as many as they possibly can. But the balance is getting opposition that also have a surplus of players to use because, for instance, you wouldn't have played one over Christmas because half of what would have been the A team, possibly more than that, was playing against Leinster in the Pro 14. Mm -hmm. So it's a real test of depth during that, I suppose, Christmas period, really since since the A team played their last game. Now, in previous years the cup competitions for the A team would have been would have been during this period and one of the reasons why they've knocked that away is because of the strain on the depth of squads anyway what i would say in general about Ulster's depth during the six nations now we're saying that they may have more players away but i think they also have more players that are capable of doing well in the pro 14 Mm-hmm. than we would have said this time last year and certainly um, this time two years ago or three years ago. So I don't think it's as much of a cause for concern as it once was. We've already highlighted mm-hmm. the importance of losing John Cooney, but there are some big games in there. Like I think they should still be looking to beat Ospreys. Um, Alan Wynne-Jones has made it clear what um, even the Ospreys think about the Ospreys this week. And then the Cheetahs, who had bigged up as a real, a real dangerous team in the second half of the season, given their fixture list. Really let me down at the first hurdle with that performance away to Zebra because they were absolute muck. So I wouldn't be as concerned about that game mm-hmm. as I once was. And that's the only game that falls actually on the same weekend mm-hmm. as a Six Nations game. So that's the one where, you know, um, I suppose you're not looking to get anyone back, even of the yeah. the fringe players in the squad, the bench players or the travelling extras or what have you. Because the thing is, when you look at Ulster squad... You know, of all the available players they have, there's only two that they haven't used. One of them's Gareth Milosinovic, and one of them is Zach McCall. Everyone mm-hmm. else has played. Who then Milosinovic has been out all season. So yeah, like yeah. So from from that perspective, everyone in Ulster squad has had game time in the first mm-hmm. half of the season. So it's not like you're bringing in anybody completely cold. Well, I think yeah. you you know you might lose say you lose Stockdale, you bring in. Gilroy, really. You know, you could lose Addison and you can bring in Fadis. You can lose Herring and you can bring in McBurney or Andrew, who have both played at various points this season. Probably, Obviously, they'll both be in the end of the 23. The biggest thing for me is you could potentially lose Marty Murr and Tom Lutul. I don't think they will, but you could lose those two and you're still bringing in Ross Kane. Like, the depth in Ulster has improved significantly. It's still not at this the same levels uh, or the level that they want it to be and they will be the first to admit that but it has come on to the extent that they are now in a position where during the Six Nations you're not scrambling around looking for players in hope just to fill spots in the team sheet you are bringing in guys who you you trust to get results for you that'll do us for this week then Um, thank you very much as always boys and uh, everybody can tune in to the website on Saturday afternoon where we will have our live coverage of Ulster's game in Claremont. You're both going to France, aren't you? Yes. Yeah. Got my flights booked this afternoon, or my secondary flights booked this afternoon. After some uh, <laughs> train strike issues. Round the world trip. Yeah, well, not round the world, but I'll be going, hitting Paris before I head to... Uh, Head to Claremont. Enjoy. And not going to the Monster game, which... Once again, much like your complaints of your World Cup travels, absolutely nobody listened to this assembly for you. I know. Everyone's like, oh, you have to fly out of Dublin at half six in the morning. Well, I don't care. Exactly. I'd just like to make you very jealous by saying I'll be back home in my house 
in Northern Ireland at 8 o'clock on Saturday night after the game. Yeah, I'd somehow, like, somehow like, managed to shot. turn this into like a three-day trip, which is not what I wanted <laughs> at all. Well, that travel time will give you, you both plenty of uh, writing time, so people can right. keep an eye on the website and the newspaper for all the reaction ratings and uh, considered comment pieces from that game. So until then, from Adam McKendry. Cheers, guys. Jonathan Bradley. Thanks very much. And myself, Kyle Thanks for listening.